With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Humans of Speedway podcast, where we chat to some of the stars of the sport both on and off the track who make the sport what it is, one of the most exciting white-knuckle sports in the world. I'm Ian Brannan. A bit about me, I've been a radio presenter and voiceover artist my whole working life, over 20 years now. You might even have shouted at me on the phone because I'm one of those people that tells you to press 1 for this and 2 for that. But I've been going to Speedway since as long as I can remember. In fact, I went to the 1977 World Final in Sweden before I was even born. Now, obviously, I don't remember much about the night Ivan Major won his fifth world title on a wet evening in Gothenburg, but I was there. In this series, I want to look at the background of some of the stars, both on and off the track, that make our sport what it is. And how did they find their way to Speedway and the journey that it's taken them on? In this first episode, I'm joined by a man who has won everything there is to win in British Speedway. He's represented his country at the highest level and also flown the British flag for many years with 82 Speedway GP appearances, four-time league champion and seven-time British champion. I'm pleased to welcome our first human of Speedway, Scott Nichols. Thank you. Good to be with you. I mentioned some of your honours there and a bit of your CV, but going back to the very, very start, as a young lad in the east of England, I imagine around about the early 80s, because you were born same as me, 1978. What's your very first memory of getting on any kind of bike? God, well, um, to be fair, probably in some ways I don't clearly remember the first time I got on a bike because they say you, you kind of your memories don't form properly until you're kind of around about four years old. And I think I was three and a half the first time I actually went on a motorcycle. So um, one of my first memories, actually, I was about four I think four and a half um me and another ride actually um Richard Wright the um the goalkeeper you know sort of a good goalkeeper played for Arsenal and places like that yeah um <clears throat> me and him used to ride around before the grass track meetings because we I think you had to be five to race five or six to, to actually race properly so uh, me and him used to ride around before the meeting um because I've got an older brother who used to ride and, and Richard's got an older brother as well Stuart so yeah, we used to ride around before the meetings, um, and that was fun. But I remember this one particular day. It was at a place, uh, Easton, um, out in Suffolk, near Easton Farm Park, and 
the track was a little bit of a slope, it was a little bit wet, and they were like, oh, just go steady, Scott, take it easy, it's a little bit slippery. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, and off I went whizzing down the straight, didn't pay any attention, did I? <laughs> just like went into the corner, fell off over the handlebars, open face crash helmet, head first into a cow pat. So that was probably, yeah, one of my first memories, probably not the fondest, but um, still nonetheless, it was fun, and I remember kind of um, picking myself up and splitting my lip and, Weirdly enough, I still remember the the a very vivid picture of the 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 strawberry lolly the lady in the the canteen truck gave me to oh. try and take the taste away of the cow muck. Oh, <laughs> I mean that is that is the glamour, isn't it? That it is. Uh, you know, the, the the strawberry lolly and a and a, a boily burger that was that was as good as it got then. Yeah, the catering at Speedway has never really improved massively, has it, over the time? It's not state of the art, is it? It's not. You're not kind of um, Michelin star rated. But um, do you know what? After having cow muck in your mouth, a boily burger was tasted pretty damn good. So that's really it. Because I was thinking when I was asking you that question that you were talking about, you know, getting on like a little push bike or something like that. But to be actually on a motorbike at three and a half, you know, that is early. It was. Uh, yeah, I was a, a young starter. Um, and no particular reason. I mean, I certainly wasn't forced or kind of pressured into it. I just kind of obviously had a had a love for it you know I was just just wheels and just being active I was a very active kid I was always running around jumping off stuff and I think I was like two and a half when I first was riding a bike with no stabilized I don't even think I actually had stabilized I think my dad kind of you know just said oh let's see if we see how we go and um the way I went so um yeah kind of wheels have been a, a a massive part of my life for a very long time yeah, they certainly have. That's that's incredible. And you mentioned there about grass track. I mean, you you, you did do quite a lot of that um, before getting onto the the speedway that we that we all know. You know, the dirt track speedway. So you you were schoolboy champion by the time you were fifteen. Yeah, grass track. I mean, I always say. I mean, excuse the pun, but it's a grassroots sport. I mean, it was <laughs> it was um, it was it was the breeding ground um, for so many like very very good you know um, speedway riders. I mean, you know, Mark Lorem, Joe Screen, Gary Havelock. I mean. You know, just to name a couple. I mean, they all came through the grass track ranks and were, were very, very good. And you know, it, it's a shame that grass track has kind of died off a little bit because that really was kind of the stepping stone. And for those that are not familiar, grass track is very, very similar to speedway. Principally, it's the same. Um, the bikes are slightly different. Um, grass track bikes do have a little bit of rear suspension, a slightly bigger bike, but it's in a field, so um, you need a little bit more suspension because the tracks are generally bumpier and it's a it's more of a physical sport. Um, but it was. I spent a long time on the grass track. Um, it wasn't until my kind of last year of um, schoolboy grass track when I was 15 that I won the, the British Championship. And I won a few kind of British rounds and I was Supreme Champion, which is like almost equivalent like the Grand Prix series in a way. But you know what? You know, I had the best my parents could afford, but we couldn't afford the, the top stuff. And so I was always a little bit kind of under speed and underpowered with my bikes. And it wasn't until that last year that you know, we got a bike that was a lot more competitive and, um, yeah, and I won the, the British final in 93. So, um, it was cool. And I carried on with the grass track for a few more years after that, um, combining that with the speedway. Um, I finally sort of closed the door on grass track at the end of 2000. So that was my, my last year. I did a couple of kind of invitational races, should I say after that, but it was kind of because I wanted to really focus on the speedway. And I suppose that you're at this point in your life around then when you've got to decide what direction career-wise you're going to go in you could tell that speedway was going to be more than just a hobby to you oh yeah definitely i mean there was there was always a, a love and a desire and i think it's you know when the, those little things when you when you're a kid i mean i, I still remember 
one day just randomly when I was at primary school, like having taken a pair of goggles in with me and putting them on my desk, you know, it was like, it's just weird how you do these things. But it was, it was, you know, it's, um, teachers, I remember even at primary school, you know, the teachers say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it'd be like, oh, I want to be a fireman. Or I want to be a policeman and I want to be a doctor. And it was always, like, I want to race speedway. I mean, that was always what I wanted to do as a kid. And, uh, so no, I did, I, I kind of pushed for it, but it wasn't always the way. I mean, reality sort of kicked in and when I was probably like 15 or so I mean there was still a, a massive desire to be a, a speedway rider and do that as a living but at the same time I wasn't 100% sure if it was going to be a, a viable option and, and financially so um, you know for work experience I mean I did import export and I toyed with being an accountant <laughs> so it's like oh, really? um, a total contrast to, to racing motorcycles but um, yeah that was very short-lived I realized that a calculator and a pen wasn't for me. I was just going to say, actually, because on my on my, uh, my my bedroom wall when I was a youngster, on one wall I had Speedway stuff, pictures of Gary Havelock uh, mainly, and yeah. uh, and on the other wall it was like pictures of radio stations, and I went down the radio route. So what would you – you've obviously alluded to the fact that maybe accountancy or something like that might have been something you were interested in. Yeah, I certainly didn't have pictures of calculators on my wall. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that would be extreme. <laughs> it would be a little bit. Do you know what? I wasn't a massive poster man. I mean, uh, I, if I had a few posters, I would have posters of, um, you know, motocross um, riders and, and and I would have a few speedway things. But mm. um, no, I wasn't. It was. I wasn't like a an avid kind of. I wasn't one of those people that, you know, if he walked in my room, would go, "Oh, here's a, a massive motorcycle." No, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. It never was. Um, and I'm still now. I mean. You know, whenever I've wherever I've lived, um, my house has never been like a, a shrine to Speedway or anything like that. I mean, I very, very rarely have trophies and pictures out on display. Um, although I'm very proud of what I've done, I'm very proud to be part of Speedway, and it's a massive part of my life. And I have a, a strong passion for it. It's mm. Home is home for me, and it's kind of I like to kind of be away from those things. So um, no, I, I did have the, the posters on the walls and things like that, but. Um, yeah, it was always it was always something I, I wanted to do, and so uh, yeah, there wasn't necessarily the visual aspects there, but within me, I always wanted to do it. Who was your speedway hero then? Who did you sort of look up to when you were when you were younger and sort of aspiring to to make it professionally? Uh, when I was a kid, it was no question it was John Cook, mm -hmm. um, Cowboy Cook, the American rider. He was, um, you know, he was just such a, a talent on a bike, and it wasn't so much that he had that aura about him that he was world champion material, and he was going to be. It was just what he did on a bike was breathtaking, you know, and, and, and he was a showman, you know, the wheelies and the way he was as a person, he was just so flamboyant and he was brilliant with the fans and he was always just chucking his goggles away. I always remember he had a brand of goggles called Amy and, uh, you know, he used to just throw them away and um, very fortunate for me. I mean, he, he became a, a kind of a good friend, you know, I raced with him together in Sweden and, uh, you know, and then in the winters, I'd go and stay with him for a bit and we'd go snowboarding and stuff. And that, that was quite surreal, you know, mm. um, for somebody kind of to, to kind of be a mate with, the, you know, the person who was your idol as a kid. That, that that was pretty cool and pretty special. And um, so, yeah, for me, it was just the way he was as a rider. He was just so entertaining to watch. Um, so he was he was my uh, role model and uh idol as, as a kid and then things things change i mean as later in the years I, I had an awful lot of respect and you know i was good friends with billy hamill and he helped me gave me a, a fair few pointers and, and tips and advice in my career and which, which is strange you find through speedway that um 
when you do start coming up through the ranks and and you start kind of being a threat to people that um people are not some people are not too forthcoming want to help you you know they don't want to see you overtake them so they kind of don't actually help you whereas billy was a total opposite he was just like you know and he's an american way he just said look you know what i see a lot of me and you and um you know uh you know if i can help i will and uh so he was he was really cool to me and and, then i have a lot of a lot of time respect for billy as well that's really nice though isn't it because like you say it's a very competitive business speedway and you know for for somebody who who that point obviously um, leading the world really in Speedway. And, and also, I think he was one of the first to sort of really get the, I mean, social media wasn't really around, but he was certainly online and stuff, wasn't he, Billy Hamill? I remember he was one of the first Speedway riders I can remember that had a website. Yeah, definitely. I mean, him and, you know, him and Greg did the the Exide thing. I mean, they're very, very innovative, but, you know, kind of very ahead of their time. I mean, Tony was, Tony Rickardson was very good at, at the whole corporate sponsorship thing as well but i think you know it's fair to say that i think billy and greg kind of kicked it off to start with and greg's still fantastic on social media i mean greg is you know i think in in nowadays there's there's different angles you can look at riders i mean there's some riders you can look at purely for their racing um for their fitness and their, their dedication and stuff but i mean there's an, there's an all-round package i mean greg you can't i don't think you could um, find anyone better to model yourself on um he doesn't go out there and proclaim to be the, the fittest most dynamic athlete in the world but Man alive, he can still deliver on the bike, and and the way he is with the fans, and the way he is on social media, and 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 the way he's kind of always just pushing and developing things. I mean that that's that's pretty special. So um, yeah, going back to to Billy, they they were they were very much ahead of their time, and 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 for someone like that who was chasing, you know, when when kind of he was helping me, that was when he was at his peak, when he was chasing world championships, and it is, you know, it's like I say, a lot of people don't want to give anybody a helping hand if they see them as a threat but he wasn't that way he just was like obviously very confident in his own abilities and his own talent and was like you know what if if you go in a race he man he didn't want to lose at all but you know he was like if you beat me in a race hands down you beat me then you deserve to beat me so um that was that was a, a cool way of looking at it you're listening to the humans of speedway podcast i'm ian brannan and in this episode i'm in conversation with seven times british champion scott nichols now, Scott, your first full speedway break was as a 16-year-old with Peterborough. It was a day you'll never forget for a number of reasons. Can you take us back to that day in 1994? Yeah, I was I was 16 in May. Uh, 16th of May, I turned 16, but obviously I was right in the middle of my exams. So um, I, I'd i signed, but I said that I wouldn't actually start racing until, you know, I had the kind of sense to say, look, you know what, I want to get my exams out of the way first. So I actually made my debut on, on June the 29th. Um, and it was a, 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 an odd day, really, because I had a, a mix of emotions, being so excited about and making my professional debut and nervous and all the other things. But also my granddad died that day as well. So it was kind of um, a bit of an odd one that I was kind of going to do my first professional meeting. And, and you know, my granddad had just sort of departed the world yeah. in that afternoon. And uh, obviously I was too young to drive. So, um, you know, fair play to my dad. He's... Uh, he still said, "Look, you know what? You've, um, you know, this is this is your career and this is part of your journey." So he still drove me to the race along with a, you know, a real good mate of mine, Stevie, who was my mechanic for years, and went there. It was at Long Eaton, and yeah, that was that was a, it was still a really cool day. I mean, I, I enjoyed the track. It was a track I actually enjoyed going to. It looked a bit rough and ready, but it actually rode really quite nice. And and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's not a day I'm going to forget. While it was nerve-wracking being your first meeting, was it was it also an escape from the events earlier in the day? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, it's uh, it's impossible to think of two things at the same time. And mm. and um, you know, as much as it was my granddad, my focus was was the racing. And uh, but I had to be. You know, it was, it was my first race in my professional career, and I was bricking it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, this um, little sixteen spotty little kid, and turning up at Long Eaton in what, what was the first division then, which is equivalent now the championship, um, and you know, Long Eaton, for anyone who had been, I mean, sadly, Long Eaton no longer is there, but it was quite an intimidating place in a way. I mean, on the back straight, there was like a raised bank where, <clears throat> you know, people could park their cars along there. And so after the race, you know, when the when the, one of the Long Eaton invaders won, they, they'd all flash their lights and bib their horns. And that's really cool. But as a young kid going there and the track looked a bit rough and there's some like dark bits and, you know, and then there was like, I remember Martin Dixon rode for them. Um, yeah, I mean, a proper lovely guy, but I mean, he had the name Martin Mad Dog Dixon. Well, as a 16 year old, you're thinking, oh my God, why the hell has he got this name Mad Dog? <laughs> you know, and so um, it was. Um, but you know what? I held my own. I can't remember. I think I got, uh, I think like six points or something like that. It's not a bad um, start. No. So yeah, I did okay. And uh, yeah, it was, it was not, you know, once the kind of the, the nerves settled and got the butterflies out of the way about it being my first race, I mean, obviously the first race is the the one isn't it you're going there and it's yeah. just man alive everything's tingling your heart rate is through the roof and you're kind of you're physically kind of almost shaking because you're so nervous and you know when you're at the start line you're sitting there you, the green light comes on and you're just your fingers are just twitching like mad because you're so keen to get going but also so excited so nervous so many emotions all rolled into one but um once that tape goes everything's gone you're just you're then focused on doing the best you can in that 60 or so seconds that you've got to do your job. I imagine it's almost like leaping off a cliff. You know, you've got the bike fired up, full revs, waiting for the tapes to go up. And once the tapes do go up, it's just kind of an instinct of, right, just need to cling on for a minute now. It is. It's um, it's autopilot, all those natural instincts. I mean, even though obviously it's an adult job now and it's professional and you're being paid and there's the pressures of the team and pressures of the fans, etc. It's, it's still, everything else is still fundamentally the same as the first time you did it as a kid. Um, it's a race and nobody wants to be last in a race. Everybody wants to win the race. Um, so all those natural instincts just come back. Um, and it is the same. Like you say, once that clutch goes, that's it. It's, um, they, then you're in autopilot and then it's just, you know, focus on the race. You can't have done too badly, though, because it wasn't too long before you were in the GB team. <laughs> a couple of years later, well, about a few years later, you fast forward to your, your first full GB call-up. I'm looking at the uh, Speedway World Cup final. Yeah, it's uh, no, it, it, it did. It kind of, in some ways, went quite quickly. And I think things were a little bit different then. Um, you know, it, fortunately, the lads now, they do, you know, we have kind of like the academy leagues or the conference leagues, whatever you like, a development league, should I say, Um you know, whereas for myself and, and the riders kind of before me, they're a little bit older than me, you know, you like your Mark Lorems and your Joe Screens and stuff. There was no, there was no stepping stone league. It was, like you said, leap of faith. It was almost, that was it. It was kind of, you went for, I didn't even um, have junior races after meeting. It was literally, you know, me and kind of there's a few like Lee Lanham and a few other riders like that. We used to do demonstration races before the meeting Ipswich and places like that when we were, too young to race but the moment we turned 16 we were thrown in the deep end straight in the team and I think in some ways that kind of 
possibly helped mm. get to those, like you say, Team GB things a little bit quicker because there was no kind of, oh, this keeps confidence up, which I, I think is a good thing. Um, it was like sink or swim. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the armbands were gone and we had to get on with it. So uh, it was, you know, being part of Team GB, that was um, something I was hugely proud of. And, uh, you know, we came very, very close on a few occasions. Sadly, never in my time secured the gold, which was which was tough. How do you think the GB team has developed over these recent years? Because it's also been a, a thing that Ty Wolfenden has um, had thoughts on as well. I mean, are, we, are we in a position now, do you think, that going forward that things are sorted out and we're in the right direction and to compete with the likes of the Danes and the Poles and the Aussies and so on in the next 10 years? I certainly think so. I think what's, um, what's great is, I mean, I, I kind of walked away from it for similar reasons to, to what Ty was on about and... Um, you know, so I don't want to be negative about it. Um, I think what's great now is that the, the way they've got some things, they've, they've, they're putting together a team and a structure where they're at least doing what they can to try and push the Poles and the Danes and the Swedes and the ones who, who have been more successful than us in the past. I think um, that they've got people involved there that can help develop the riders. I think what's important as well is they're looking at not just the actual the team, they're looking at the riders that are not quite ready to be in that position um, but who potentially in the future could be. I think that's what's the important thing is we need to look at the younger lads, um, even younger than what we're looking at right now, to try and bring them through, to to give them those bits of advice, to, like I highlighted earlier, to help them with, not overload them, but to help them with little pointers on you know mental mental strengths and psychologies and, and physical strengths and diets and, and things like that, just little bits and pieces, you know, that can just point them in the right direction so these things become part of their normal life and then they become physically mentally stronger without it being a, a chore and a burden it's just part of everyday life for them and and uh i think it's gonna take a little bit of time it's a process but i think it's great for british speedway that we have something there and i've, I've kind of spoken to the people involved with it a little bit on a couple of things and kind of um sort of had a little bit of a you know just given my input for what it's worth on the little bits and pieces i think that maybe they, additional things they could do to try and help develop the riders. And, and that, that's the great thing is that they're open to um, other opinions and for people to, to help. I think it's, as I say, it's much more of a longer-term fix, but I think it's fantastic that we, we have that infrastructure there. This is Humans of Speedway, getting to know the story behind some of the stars of the sport, both on and off the track. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this first episode, we're talking to multiple British champion, league winner, Grand Prix star and purveyor of a snazzy shirt, Scott Nichols. Before the end of this podcast, we're going to be attempting to create Scott's ultimate fantasy speedway meeting. Who will be in his all-time top seven? We'll find out before the end. First though, Scott, I want to talk to you about your time with your hometown club. Being an Ipswich lad, signing for the Witches must have been the dream. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's uh, yeah, definitely where I, where I started in my career. And I think it's for most not just speed riders, I mean, sports professionals, whatever it is, you know, I think it's always a a dream and, and something that you want to do is to race for your local club. I think it's something that will always be uh, something that people uh, hold close to their hearts because it's where you're from and that's where your family and friends are from and everything else. But um, yeah, I did, and you know, I did my demonstration races there. I used to go have a practice after meeting as a kid and, and stuff like that. So I am, um, you know, I was always wanting to race for Ipswich, but ironically, like you say, I first joined Peterborough um, for the first season because I um, I was aware that I didn't like big tracks. Um, I'd always grown up on small tracks and I figured that 
the only way I'd kind of come to terms with it and deal with actually riding big tracks better would be to have one as my home track, which is why I chose Peterborough. Um, <clears throat> but then, like you say, I did spend quite a few years at Ipswich. I, I, I loved being there, and it was a it was a good club, and I liked the track, and, and obviously it was nice being on my doorstep, but it got to a point, it was um, ironically after like the most successful team probably in the history of Speedway, 98, I decided that I wanted to, I felt like I needed to spread my wings and stand on my own two feet a little bit more. I felt like I needed to get away from the, the creature comforts of racing for your hometown club and, and, and spread out. So that was when I went to Paul for a couple of years and I think that definitely helped my career and um, was was something that I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did because it was something I had to meet new people and I was actually really quite a shy person and I had to make new friends, new acquaintances. I had to deal with different people and different situations and I think that's something that was good for my career and um, I certainly certainly don't regret doing that. I think it was something that was, was good for me to do and it's something I'd encourage other riders to do. Things went up a notch with the Speedway Grand Prix series. Your first uh, encounter with the Speedway GPs though was in the in the days when things were slightly more humble. The British Grand Prix was held at Brandon Stadium in Coventry back then when it was just a, a smaller series than what we know now and before the days of massive stadiums in Cardiff. You were a wild card that day. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, the Grand Prix they did were over much shorter, you know, sort of five, six rounds and um, obviously it's fantastic to see how they've grown. Um, but it was, it was at Coventry um, that I'd that was my first ever kind of experience of Grand Prix Speedway. And that was when there was like, um, you know, the 24 riders with you kind of had the knockout system and stuff like that. And and I didn't fare too great. I, I did, like, I think I might hurt my hand or something just before it, but that's no excuse. I mean, that was another level, but it was, it was still a great experience for me. And, and it was really cool to be part of that. And obviously I knew I wanted to be part of the, you know, the, the GP scene at some point in my career. And you were, because then you, you, Cardiff did come along and you, you got that first experience there. What, what was that like the first time? Because you obviously have ridden there a number of times, but what's that first experience like of riding in a stadium like that that's so much different to anything else really on the calendar? Because A, it's, it's a stadium doesn't always have a speedway track in it, but it's just got so many more people in there as well. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really quite overwhelming. And I think, um, you know, nowadays all sports professionals are, are kind of way more switched on with, you know, the psychology of sports and dietitian and everything else. Um, you know, back then it was, you know, it wasn't so readily, readily available on online and things like that. It was all, you know, it was much more kind of secretive back then. Um, but it was, I mean, mentally it would just be really tough. You know, I, I found it hard. I mean, it would be, you've got the pressures of trying to perform, to your best against the best in the world, which is enough pressure on that in itself. And then you walk out of that tunnel to the track and, and you look up and you just see this sea of flags of Union Jacks and St. George's Crosses and Welsh Dragons. And, and you're just like, oh my God, like I've never, never seen this many people at a Speedway event before in my life. And the noise is just phenomenal. And, and then you know that there's TV cameras there and there's all these people watching from around the world and there's no hiding every, you ride like a plonker and it sticks out like a sore thumb, you know, you're going to get your rear end well and truly kicked. So <laughs> there's a massive amount of pressure. So mentally, probably more than anything, you're going in there just going, oh my God. And and I did struggle with that for some time in the Grand Prix as a, as a whole. And um, it wasn't, you know, and I probably 
kind of learned a bit about the psychology side of things and, and how to deal with that probably a bit late on. And um, that was something I, I struggled with. I think it's, um, that's a huge part of it. You know, um, it's, it's easy to say it's just any other race, but it's not, it's totally not. And um, so, yeah, for, for in that respect, Cardiff is, is something that is, is very enjoyable, but is the pressures and the, the nerves associated with it early doors were um were not really that enjoyable in some respects what 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 was the thing that um played on your mind the most was it the fact that there were so many people watching or was it the uh, level of the competition that you were at what was what was your sort of inner fear really it's probably the amount of people there and the um knowing that all the eyes are on you as well the, the other thing as well especially at cardiff is that Every rider gets a brilliant reception there, which which I think is great. You know, I think that's what's so cool about Speedway as a whole. Is it's a very family oriented sport. But you know, I'm, even when you do the track walk um, before the meeting starts, you know, and the, the the stadium is not nowhere near full at that point because you're doing your track walk probably an hour or so before the actual meeting's going to start. And it's as you're walking around, the air horns are following you as you're walking around the track, and 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 it it was. It wasn't until I kind of learned the ability and, and the kind of the mindset of flipping that to your advantage and kind of using that as a kind of a support mechanism as opposed to a, a crippler. You know, mm. initially it was early. Do you like, oh, my God, all these people when you do so well and, you know, it's lovely. But you're just like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm letting all the, if I ride like an absolute plonker, I'm letting all these people down. And then there's all the people on TV. And, and so. As much as you know that you're up against these amazingly talented riders, who you were worried about trying to beat, um, I think it was a fact that there's so many people there watching you, wanting you to 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 do well, that you felt really bad if you let them down. As, as much as you, first and foremost, you don't want to disappoint yourself. Um, but it was so there is massive pressure, and you can understand why riders sometimes underperform in situations like that or touch your tapes and get nervous because. Um, there's the pressure to, to win, but it's also the, the pressures that they're feeling from the people that want them to do well. And although everybody there wants people to do well and is willing them on, it can actually have the adverse effect on some people if they can't flick that switch in their mind to use it to their advantage. And such fine margins on the day as well. You know, you could move an inch and it, it could be all over for you. It is massively game over. And, and also at places like Cardiff, because they're one-off events, um, the, the ruts at the start line get really, really deep. So, um, and because we have to be within a certain kind of margin away from the tapes, you, you roll your bike back. But because if you can imagine, your your back wheel is on a rut, so the bike is always trying to push forward anyway. And we don't have brakes, so you're trying to hold the bike back. So the moment you kind of, you know, dip your clutch or slightly let the weight off the bike to try and anticipate any movement, the bikers are naturally going to push forward even more than if you're on a flat surface. So all those things get accentuated and, and become more critical. And, and obviously in the Grand Prix, the refs are very vigilant. And, and uh, yeah, so you've got the start line. There's a huge amount of pressure. Yeah, sure. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I think a lot of people don't realise that obviously the, the thing weighs quite a bit, but then to think that you're effectively holding it on a hill it's uh, yeah. not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. And obviously on our left foot, we have the steel shoe, which you get no grip with as well. So, um, it, you know, it can be, it sounds like I'm moaning a bit, doesn't I really? But it's, uh, 
it's just trying to give people a bit of an idea of the kind of added pressures you have, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, it's not not as easy as it looks. Um, while we're on the subject, though, there was there was the one famous incident, uh, I think, in 2009, which uh, gets gets probably brought out on your BT Sport appearances um, in in the past <laughs> <laughs> annually. You've obviously patched things up with Emil since. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have, and uh, he's a he's a good lad. I mean, it was just. I mean, we were polar opposites that night, man. I that was my last year in the Grand Prix, and and I was having an absolute shocker of a year. And and like you said, I mean, you know, I, I was feeling the pressures of performing badly in the Grand Prix, and and then to be in Cardiff, I wasn't having a great night there either. Um, and, and Emma was on the opposite end of it. He had it was his first year in the Grand Prix, and he had had like a sensation, one in Prague. He was just flying on top of the world, but he was struggling in Cardiff and. And we had a kind of, it wasn't even a coming together on the track. I think it was just, you know, I, I kind of run him, not, I wouldn't even say hard on the kind of last bend of the last lap of the race we met. And I mean, he ran the last and obviously he was feeling the pressures and wasn't happy. I suppose his bubble had burst a little bit that night and he kind of reacted and, and I was on the, I was just not in the best place to be um, provoked. And uh, yeah, we had kind of handbags at dawn and, it was it and it was all a bit of fun and and uh was, you know what like 10 10 years later and it's still kind of one of the biggest talking points of speedway and i make this joke every time but um i i, I brought it up when we went to the um we had to go in the foam jury to be disciplined and we got fined and you know told about you know we shouldn't conduct ourselves in that way etc cetera, etc cetera. and I did sort of tongue-in-cheek say, well, actually, I, instead of fining us, I think you should be paying us royalties because this is going to give you more exposure than anything else from tonight. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> I was I was given a little nudge by the the, the representative, uh, kind of represent me at the time as if to say, I suggest you shut your mouth right now. <laughs> so I did, but I still stand to that. You know what? It's, it's kind of, if it got an airtime, I think me and Emma would be doing quite well out of it. You should have, uh, you should have bought the footage and every time they run it, they had to pay you. Exactly, that's what I mean. Royalty, we should have done because, <laughs> yeah. And then people gone about. I go, who won the Grand Prix that night? And no one can remember. No, so, um, absolutely not. Go. It was Jason Crump, by the way. Oh, <laughs> well, is it right? Yeah. Well, it's a good reminder for because uh, yeah, everybody. Th- there was only one moment that people remember, and that and you were it exactly. And I think he went through the card as well. Wow, and all overshadowed yeah. by you and uh, and Emil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. Joining me today is seven times British champion Scott Nichols. Now, Scott, going to be talking your fantasy speedway meeting shortly. So thinking cap on, we're thinking of ideal, ultimate teammates, ultimate stadiums, all that kind of stuff. But first, I want to look at your time at Coventry because it's an iconic British speedway team, sadly no longer with us, but you are their most successful captain and probably will remain that way for quite some time yet. But a special time. It was. It was, um, again, another one of those periods where I'd been Ipswich for a few years again and I kind of felt I was just getting itchy feet again and felt I needed to move and and, and um, do something to kind of re- re-channel my focus, I suppose, and, and again, meet new people. Now, now it's part of my... I, I love kind of going to new clubs because I get to meet new people and make new acquaintances and I think that's that's something that's great about Speedway and, and, and for me personally, I love that. And Coventry was a a club that I had very, very fond memories of. It was um, when when Mr. Sandu was in charge of the club and Colin Pratt ran it. It was it was an exceptional club. It was run clockwork. I mean, Colin was a very, very organised and very disciplined man. Everything was done spot on. 
Um, I mean, the track nine times out of ten was very well prepared. And um, it was. It was just there was a good sense of leadership from the top of the club, which then sets a good precedent for the riders. And and uh, I was captain. And, and yeah, we did have a very successful time there. And, and there was um, captaincy that I, I was very honoured and, and privileged to have been. And, um, but, you know, I, even... But again, then I would say people would say, you know, how do you feel as being captain and da da da? And I say, yeah, you know what? I'm, I love being captain, and I'm very proud and honoured to be that person. But yeah, when it, when a team is successful, like we had that that run of the three years there, we had very good success. One year in particular, it was a team. It's not the captain. Then I mean, I've always said this. I almost like there's seven captains when you've got a team that gels together well like that. Because on paper, we weren't the strongest team that year when we won everything. Um, we weren't on paper the strongest team, but we had such a good sense of team spirit and camaraderie between ourselves, and 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 kind of spurred each other on. That my captain's role was eased up a little bit, really, because it, it, you know the other six guy, everybody was mucking and helping each other. So I think you know we had kind of almost like seven captains. I was just fortunate enough to have the little C beside my name in the programme. And you being a seven-time British champion, I can't believe that we've not really mentioned this. I mean, the, is, is is there one of the seven that's sweeter than them all? Uh, yeah, the one, obviously the first one's always cool because it's something you're striving for. Um, but I think the 2011, I think it was, or 12, I can't remember now. It was obviously that sweet, I can't remember. Um, it was the year I went to, to Swindon when Lee Adams retired. And and I went to Philly Shoes, and I mean, God, I mean, it's you know, you talk about pressures. I mean, there's I don't think there's anybody rode Swindon better than Lee Adams, and so I knew I had massive boots to fill there, and 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 Swindon was kind of a track I enjoyed, but it seemed to be a bit of a jinx track for me. But um, anyway, I was under big pressure to go there, and and I was just struggling. I had a shocker of a year at Swindon. I was, you know, I was getting booed by the home fans. It was like, and that's never nice. That's really tough, and. You know, anybody that knows me knows that I'll give 100% every race and I was racing my backside off but just was not delivering the goods. So for me to win the British final that year, was that was that was, that meant a lot to me because I, I kind of really wanted and needed that reassurance that, you know what, you can still do this, you know, you can still mix it with the best guys because I was getting my backside kicked and it was tough. So that's probably the one that, and that was at Wolverhampton. Um, that's probably the one that, for me, probably stands out just because I was having such a tough domestic year that year. Triumph over adversity is always a good story. Now, before you go, Scott, you're a man of the Speedway world. One thing I'd like to do is see if we can create your Speedway paradise, the ultimate meeting in the ultimate venue with the ultimate people in true Speedway style. Let's see if we can do it in less than two minutes. So if you're ready, here we go. First question then is... What would be your ultimate track? Well, I prefer small tracks, but Jezhov uh, in Poland was a pretty cool track. So the next question is, which stadium would you put that track in? Well, if we, couldn't, we can't use Cardiff, so I'll go with Bellevue. The new Bellevue is pretty special. So we're having the meeting with the Jezhov track in the Bellevue Stadium. Who's going to be your teammates on that day? This could be a tricky one. You can have any rider alive, dead, past, present. Over to you. Okay, well, they're definitely alive, and mine would be it'd be a fun team to be in. It would have to be Cookie, my my childhood hero, uh, Billy Hamill, Mark Lorem, Jono, Steve Johnson, uh, Joe Screen, and Billy Gennaro. I think that would be a pretty sensational <laughs> that does, team. <laughs> that does sound like yeah, a good road trip with them as well. I think 
God, yeah, I think we'd all be in AA afterwards, but there we go. <laughs> now, this meeting, especially with that lineup, is going to need a little bit of order. Who would be the referee for this meeting? Tony Steele. He's always fair and he's a, he's a good referee. Now, you're probably going to be needing a spanner man who can. Who would be your, your mechanic for this dream meeting? Uh, Stevie, affectionately known as Gutty, he's been with me. Man Live, we talk about stuff. He's been with me um, on a but he was with me since I was 11 years old. So, um, yeah, in my testimonial, I think he had missed about five of my meetings. So he wow. had been a massive, but yes, he knows me better than anyone. Now, people at the BSPA would be probably shaking in their boots at this, but supposing we put Scott Nichols in charge of the rule book, what would be the first rule you would change? God, one? Am I only allowed one? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the first one. Okay. All right. If we couldn't, if we couldn't have the sport run independently, then I would go with um, fix a points limit for three years, increase it as well, but fix it for three years so teams can build and, and try and work as a team. Yeah. So you can sign for longer contracts and stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, a team from any time in history, from any league in the world, who would be the opposition? Ipswich of 98 because that was like hands down probably the best team in the British Speedway wow that's a good question we might get our back ends kicked but uh, it'd be a fun night (laughs) (laughs) it's been brilliant talking to you Scott thanks very much for your time and um, I wish you all the best when you do finally get back on the track let's hope that's soon thanks a lot my thanks to Scott Nichols for joining me on this very first episode of the Humans of Speedway podcast I hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, don't forget to subscribe so you get any future episodes straight to your device. And if you'd like to give us a comment or suggest names you'd like to hear in this podcast, it'd be great to hear from you too. See you next time for the Humans of Speedway. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.